Let's pray. We come before you because we desperately need you. We don't have what it takes inside of ourselves to understand your word, let alone to apply it to our lives. So we ask, Holy Spirit, you would be mightily at work amongst us, conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ, beautifying us and radiating your bride, the church, which is flesh of your flesh and bone of your bones, whom you died for, whom you bought with a price, who you redeemed and who you love. Teach us to love you and to love the church. Father, thank you for your word. Illumine our hearts now in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you were able, we would ask you to please stand as we look at Psalm 122 this morning. And it says, a song of ascents, and this is of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Friends, this is the very word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, as we've been studying, I like to call it, even though I know we're turning the calendar to fall, but I still call it Summer in the Psalms, looking at the Psalms of Ascents. They're called Songs of Ascents. And we're reminded that the setting for these songs are pilgrims, pilgrimaging, traveling to Jerusalem, celebrating possibly a religious festival perhaps the Feast of Tabernacles. And the genre, one of the things that we have said and explored, whenever you look at a psalm, they are poetry. And just like if I was to hand you a piece of literature, the first job you would have to do in order to interpret that literature literature correctly would be to figure out what category, what genre is it about. So like if I said, hey, here's a novel, it's a bestseller, let's read it together, you might say, oh, I know how to read novels, fiction, okay, good, I like that. Or if I said to you, here's a physics textbook. Yeah, see, exactly. You go, oh. Why? Because we naturally understand. There are different genres of literature. See, I knew that growing up. I said no to the novels, and I said no to the physics textbooks. Always said yes to Sports Illustrated. (laughs) I knew exactly what genre of literature I wanted to go to. Give me the sports scores, and I was right there. The Psalms are much like that. You have to identify the genre, the type of literature it is. And Psalm 122 is a hymn of praise. Note its tone of exuberant joy from beginning to end. I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. I hope that's our attitude every Lord's Day morning, right? When you wake up Sunday morning, you're going, yes, I did not want to sleep in today. I was glad when Pastor Jeff said, let us go to the house of the Lord. That was everybody's attitude. You know the application, don't you, right off the bat of this particular psalm. That was David's attitude towards worship. 
See, think of other genres of psalms like this, like Psalm 48, that's as great as the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, the holy mountain, that is beautiful in elevation, is the joy. The mountain of God is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. See, why is he so glad and so he's going to be with the presence of the Lord? He's not going through motions. He's not just singing hymns. He is going to meet with and to worship and to be in the presence of the Lord. See, one of the things we also have to notice, notice that as we've been studying these songs of ascents, and this is the third one we've looked at, this is the first one that told us in the title that it was of David. And as such, it gives us a clue to its historical context. So as one commentator put it, said if we take the Davidic authorship of the psalm seriously, this requires us to think that the house is the tabernacle, although in later periods it would refer to the temple. And if the psalm is Davidic, quite possibly 2 Samuel chapter 6, which describes David moving the ark to Jerusalem, could provide an appropriate background to its original composition. So for example, just looking back, give you these kind of introductory thoughts. At 2 Samuel chapter 6, we read that David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with, and get this, listen carefully, songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Makes me wonder if David could be Presbyterian or not. (laughs) Would we throw him out of our church service before being too expressive? The point is they celebrated before the Lord with every ounce of skill that they had within them. And who knows that whether one of these songs was not composed to be utilized in the songs of ascents that we're looking at. So why all this celebrating? Why this joy? As Mark Futado, who's the Old Testament professor down at RTS Reform Seminary, In Orlando says, he says, the rabbis referred to Jerusalem as the navel of the universe. He writes, it is amazing that this ancient city still plays such a vital role in modern life. It is sacred to Jews, Christians, and Muslims alike, and still is the destination of travelers today as it was the destination of Israelites in ancient days. So why was this city, the city of God, so vital, so important Three things we learn here in this psalm about the importance of the city of God and the house of the Lord. We learn about its power, we learn about its purpose, and we learn about its promise. We learn the power of the city of God and the house of the Lord. We learn the purpose of the city of God and the house of the Lord. And we learn the promise of the city of God and the house of the Lord. And these follow the structure. The very same, remember, this is poetry. This psalm is divided into three stanzas. Verses one and two, the first stanza talks about the power, the overwhelming power of joy coming into the presence of God. 
The second stanza, verses 3 through 5, talks about the purpose of the city of Jerusalem, the city of God and the house of the Lord. And then finally, verses 6 through 9 gives us the promise, the promise of shalom, the promise of blessedness, of soundness, of well-being that is to come to the city of God and to the house of the Lord. Look with me at verse 2, the first stanza that says, the psalm begins, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Here's David proclaiming, and I want you to note the tone of joy. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. This is a psalm of celebration. And if it does look back to the return of the ark, which is where the law was held, it was symbolic of the presence of God, it's where the special presence of God was, we see something later on in 2 Samuel chapter 6 when the ark was brought to Jerusalem, especially in the exchange between David and Michael, the daughter of Saul. So for example, we read further on in Chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. Oh, naive David. I think he's about to be in trouble. What do you think? It says, but Michael, here comes the trouble. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, Oh, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. What is your attitude towards worship? Just ask yourself, if somebody's celebrating before the Lord, now I don't recommend leaping and dancing and getting naked in here before, okay? So some, there's a difference between attitude and forms. Let's make sure we're not taking this too literal. But it is speaking to the heart. It is speaking to our heart's attitude and with the entirety of our being. Being engaged physically and spiritually. Being engaged mind will, affections, emotions, and heart before the Lord as entire human beings that God in the person of Jesus Christ has come to redeem, what is our attitude towards worship? That's the fundamental question here. See, look at these, the flow of the Psalms of Ascents and how they have gone. See, Psalm 120 began as a lament psalm. The psalmist was in distress at being away from Jerusalem. He had this experience of loss of total disorientation, you know, kind of calling, woe is me that I live in Meshach and amongst the tents of Kedar. He wants to be headed towards the house of the Lord and the city of God. 
So then in Psalm 121, it's a confident psalm. And he's finally on his way. The journey has begun. He's traveling. My eyes will look up to the hills. I'm aware there are dangers. Danger is lurking. Trouble is where. Where does my help come from? Confidently, he asserts, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And then Psalm 122, he's arrived. He's made it. He's there. He's in Jerusalem. So what does he do? He praises and he celebrates. He has finally arrived. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. He's got this sense of place, place that gives him a solid standing. He has arrived and joy has filled his heart. Why this tremendous outpouring of joy? See, place is important because of presence. It is reminding him of the presence of the Lord. See, think about this. We do this in, in life all the time. Think about how, why there are many of us, some of us, some people will go and they will visit the grave, for example, of a loved one. Why are you doing that? You're going to a place to remember the presence of someone. I remember last year when we were visiting, this time of year, we were visiting Pennsylvania, and we were up there for my nephew's wedding. One of the things I went to do, I spent an afternoon, it was a lot of fun for me. I went back to my old household, my old house where I was raised. Why? Because it had so many memories for me of growing up. And yes, quite a few of causing trouble during my teenage years. But that sense of place reminds us of a sense of presence. And ultimately, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the city of God and the house of the Lord, it's not about the city as much as it is the special, intimate presence of God. As Mark Futado again says, he says, references to the house of the Lord envelope the psalm. They begin in verse 1 and verse 9 and draw our attention to the quintessential significance of the city and the psalm, the experience of the presence of God. In Jerusalem stood the house of the Lord, and to arrive at the house of the Lord was to arrive at the destiny for which we were created, the presence of God. Do you know why we are here? Do you know why you exist as a human being? The catechism says that we were created, we exist for the glory of God and to enjoy him forever. And another way of putting that is we were built for union and communion with God. We were created for union with, fellowship with, the presence of God and the house of the Lord, both in its mobile form in the tabernacle, as well as in later the temple were for the meeting place of God and man, the meeting place of heaven and earth. As one writer put it, if you want to look at the storyline of the Old Testament, the drama of the Old Testament, the biblical story is about our being banished from his presence. Adam, after his sin, was exiled. And then the whole of the Old Testament, pointing forward to Jesus Christ, is all about barriers to God's presence. The presence of God is inside the temple, but no one gets to go in there except the high priest and he only one time a year. Or the presence of God is the fiery cloud on Mount Sinai, which signals to the people, keep out until Jesus. As God incarnate, he is the word become flesh. He is the presence of God tabernacling amongst us. And he stays around for three years 
He dies, he's resurrected, he's ascended, and he pours out his spirit to do what? To experience his presence. What is the spirit of God indwelling you? But the presence of God. So again, as Mark Futado says, he says, today we need not make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem or to any other city for that matter in order to experience the presence of God because the house of the Lord has come to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we believe in him, we are that house where the Lord dwells by his spirit. Think about what Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter two when he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, no longer in exile, no more barriers to God's presence, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The house of the Lord has come to us in the person of Jesus. And look at what this says. We are being built together into that holy structure, a dwelling place, a temple for God to live in by the Spirit. That's the power of the city of God and the house of the Lord. Next, look with me at verses 3 to 5, the next stanza. And notice the purpose of the city of God and the house of the Lord. David writes, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones for the house of David. What is David doing there? He's arrived, he's going up, and now he says, here's the significance, the splendor, the purpose of the city. And he does so in three ways. I have to admit here I'm indebted to John Frame who's taught me to think because he's always saying there are three perspectives, three dimensions, three ways to always think about anything. So of course I look at a text and I'm always looking for the three ways to look at anything. If you look at this, there are three ways, David says, to look at Jerusalem. First of all, it was built as a city that is bound firmly together. That means it is a, it is a place of safety. The city of God is a place of security. It's a place of strength. And in one way, we might say that this is the normative or the prophetic perspective because one of the things it teaches us is there is no security, no safety outside the lordship, the rule, the reign, and thus the word of God. We learn here that Jerusalem was a well-built city providing security from outside hostile forces, which what? Which is why, by the way, the exile and siege of Jerusalem at the hands of Babylon was so devastating because it was an expression of the wrath and curse of God. Next, Jerusalem was built as a city to which the tribes go up. The tribes of the Lord as was decreed for Israel to do what? To give thanks to the name of our God. The city is a place of worship. This is kind of the priestly function, if you would. You heard in the text that Vic read for us earlier in the service that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
together declaring the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. What do priests do? Priests offer themselves in worship to God. See, the purpose of our priestly function is to offer ourselves to the Lord in worship. What do they do? The decree that was named for Israel was to do what? To give thanks to the Lord. See, this is what Adam was called to do in his priestly function in the first sanctuary of God, which was the garden temple of the Lord. He was to offer himself as a priest to God in worship, guarding, envisioning, developing, cultivating the garden. And Paul tells us that part of what we're to do as New Testament followers of Jesus He says, therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to do what? To lay down your lives as living sacrifices. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. What does he call it? He says that is your spiritual worship. We're to give thanks to the name of God. That's the priestly function. And lastly, the kingly perspective. The city is a place of justice. Look at verse 5. And now you have a mention of the house of David, the dynasty or the monarchy of David where he says, their thrones for judgment or thrones for justice were set, the thrones of the house of David. As one commentator says, in this house was a throne where the king sat to administer justice. Among other functions, the monarchy was to provide justice for the people of God. God's people rightly expected to receive justice at the hands of the human king. The human king, however, was only an administrator of the divine king's justice. The divine king was the one people were to ultimately look to for justice, yet in the normal course of events, the divine king dispensed his justice through the human king. Human administration is righteous when it is in keeping with divine justice. What is the purpose of the city of God? The purpose of the city of God is where you hear the normative word of God, the prophetic, coming as priests to worship in order to hear from the king and receive true judgment, things made right, true justice in every dimension, in every relationship with God, with self, with others, and with the world. And of course... The only true prophet, priest, and king is whom? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true prophet. The word become flesh. He's the normative perspective in the flesh. He's also the high priest who through the sacrifice of his own body tore the veil of the curtain of the temple, giving us full and complete access. Rather than barriers saying, keep out when that that veil of the curtain was torn from top to bottom, Arms spread wide on the cross saying, come in, you are welcome. And then, of course, Jesus is the wise and all-powerful king who administers true justice. Friends, the reign and rule of God is most clearly revealed and seen in Jesus. That's the purpose of the city. The purpose of the city is if God is present there and we see God most clearly In Jesus, remember what Jesus said in the Gospels. When you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus makes clear and reveals to us the person of God. So where the presence of the Lord is, he reveals himself there. Which leads us lastly to the third stanza, verses 6 through 9. The promise of the city of God and the house of the Lord. 
The psalm closes, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. The promise of the rule and reign of God is the peace, the shalom, the flourishing of the inhabitants of God's city and household, which is why we are told to pray for the shalom of the house of the Lord. Which Tremper Longman describes here this way. He says, here's our application for today. He says, in particular, we should pray for the peace of the body of believers, the church, whom the New Testament refers to as Jerusalem, and which anticipates the future New Jerusalem, the abode of God and humans after this world, as we know it, has passed away. This is our hope and our future, that Jesus in his person and his work, in his revelation and reconciliation, has inaugurated, has kicked off, if you will, but while still waits in the future to come in its fullness. And how is our future described for us? The end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, describes for us the glorious end of history. The Apostle John, getting a glimpse, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And what did I see? I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. No more the tribes going up to them, but the new Jerusalem was coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. There is the fulfillment of our destiny, union with God, the dwelling of God with man. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Friends, this is our future. This is the glorious end of history. And this is what we're preparing for. This is what we're living for. This is what we're praying for. This is what it means. Pray for the shalom of Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem, the city of God, the people of God, the church of God, the house of the Lord. What is being happening now? We are being prepared. What's our sanctification all about? Being made beautiful in our character, in our lives, being conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ, inside and out, prepared as a bride, beautifully adorned for her husband. Do you understand that's the purpose of your life right now? You are being made gloriously radiant for your husband, Jesus Christ. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is all about. The personality of Jesus is he is love incarnate, joy incarnate, peace incarnate, patient, and you are being conformed to that. There is nothing more important than your preparation for your husband, for the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is your future, and we are being prepared for it now. Which means we come to worship. We desire the kingdom, and we come to the house of the Lord to desire the city of God. This is what we were built for, and this is what Jesus Christ has inaugurated and made us a citizen for. This is what we're praying for when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. 
not a political statement. It is of the utmost theological import. We are praying for the beautification of the church of Jesus Christ, the shalom of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, I thank you now that you not only give us your word, but you give us your sacrament to make us more like Christ, to renew us, to feed us with yourself, because none of us can be made beautiful on our own. We are declared beautiful, justified because of Jesus, and we are being sanctified. We are being prepared for our husband. What a glorious significance that is. Prepare us now through this sacrament, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.